0: So reading this morning from 2 Kings chapter 5 and we'll read the entire chapter. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message, Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me to stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Pharpar the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done this? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world, "'except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant.' "'The prophet answered, "'As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, "'I will not accept a thing.' "'And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. "'If you will not,' said Naaman, "'please let me, your servant, "'be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, "'for your servant will never again make burnt offerings "'and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord.' But, may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing when my master enters the tem- temple of Rimon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elijah elisha said, after Naaman had travelled some distance. Gehazi, the servant of elisha, the man of God, said to himself. My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he bought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried off after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company... Of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them, and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants. "'and put them away in the house. "'He sent the men away, and they left. "'When he went in and stood before his master, "'Elisha asked him, "'Where have you been, Gehazi? "'Your servant didn't go anywhere,' Gehazi answered. "'But Elisha said to him, "'Was not my spirit with you "'when the man got down from the chariot to meet you? "'Is this the time to take money, "'or to accept cloves, "'or olive groves, "'or vineyards, "'or flocks and herds, "'or male and female slaves?' Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, For those who I haven't met, my name's Jed. I'm one of the staff workers here at Riverbank. Uh, And it's a pleasure to be at church with you and to open God's Word. And if you've been with us for a while, you would have known that we've just finished uh, our series through 1 Peter. uh, And last week, Reuben started our Hot Topics series. Uh, But we're going to pause that uh, for today because we're going to be looking at the story of Naaman. And there's two reasons we're looking at this story. First uh, reason is Reuben's dad. Uh, Murray, he's actually my lecturer at RTC and he's chosen this passage for me. Uh, But the second and more notable reason is that Old Testament stories are fantastic, aren't they? They are full of wonderful and at times weird things. They are full of heroes and horror. And they're also filled with confusing details, uh, things we struggle to understand at times and so perhaps we need to admit that instead occasionally we overlook these stories or move past them quite quickly or just leave them to the kids' stories. But this is a tragedy because we can learn so much about God as we zoom in on the details of the story, but also zoom out and have a look at the big picture, God's big picture. It's kind of like Google Earth where you can zoom in on the details but also zoom out. I can remember back in high school, we always used to try and find our house on Google Earth and you'd zoom in and find your house uh, and I can remember, and I think it's still there, my old house back in Bridport, you've got my old or my younger brother dragging the billy cart up the hill. You can zoom in and see these wonderful details. But you can also zoom out and see your town, the state, our country, and the world. And in the same way, we're going to be zooming in on the details of this story. And we're going to encounter various servants and masters. But we're also going to zoom out and have a look at the history of Israel and God's big picture. And as we wind through this story together, we're going to explore three episodes. Our first episode, we're going to encounter a mistake. Our second episode, a surprise. And our third one, we'll see a warning. A mistake, a surprise, and a warning. So let's jump into our first episode, shall we? Let's zoom in to the beginning of our story. In verse 1, we're introduced to... To Naaman. Uh, he was the commander of Aram's army and a servant, a servant of the king of Aram. And we're told that he is a great man in the sight of his master because through him they've achieved many victories. Yet, hopefully, you notice that Naaman's victories are intriguingly ascribed to the Lord. And as we zoom out, We find this quite intriguing because Aaron was in fact Israel's enemy. But the Lord has become frustrated with Israel because they abandoned him. They pestered him for a human king so that they could be like all the other nations. And even though God warned them, he warned them that human kings would lead them astray from the Lord, from their true king and master, yet they persisted. And God decided to meet their request. And this is why we see the Lord enable Naaman and his men to achieve victories over Israel. Because Israel has forsaken the Lord. But as we zoom back in on our story again, not everything is smooth sailing for Naaman either. Because we're advised that he has leprosy. An illness he and his wife must have been relatively concerned about because a young servant girl who'd been taken captive during one of Aram's raids on Israel, she says she's aware of the illness uh, and she says to her masters, quite boldly uh, letting them know, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, in, in Israel, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman incredibly decides to listen to the advice of the young servant girl. And he proceeds to go to his own master to ask for permission. And the king responds with supportive enthusiasm. By all means, go, he says. But this is where we encounter the mistake Because Naaman and the king make assumptions based upon their own experiences in the world. Firstly, although they correctly identify that the prophet of God is a a powerful and important man, they incorrectly assume that he'll be found in the king's palace, which is a mistake we can make. You see, our assumptions are almost always partially correct. We're really fooled by blatant lies, are we? They're too obvious. But lies that are hidden with truth, they can deceive us. It's kind of like A fortnight ago, uh, I, I correctly identified that football is a winter sport and it's normally wet, it's normally raining and it's normally windy. I correctly was able to identify that but I made the assumption that therefore I never need to wear sunscreen playing footy. But on this one day, all of a sudden, it might have even cracked 20 degrees. And so I come back. Maybe it says more about my complexion, but I think I got a little bit sunburned. And we do this. We correctly identify something about the world, but then we assume it applies to God. We see this again, a more notable assumption. Naaman and the king assume that they can earn or merit the healing. That is why Naaman embarks on this journey to Israel with a truckload of money, an abundance of clothes, and this letter of recommendation from his king. And in our society, we're saturated with this same mindset Let's think about it. If someone was to shout you a meal, what is one of the first reactions you have? You're probably thankful, but then in your mind, you're also thinking, I need to shout them back. I want to pay them back. Or how about if you've studied diligently for years and you finally graduate from university, what do you think? You often think, I deserve or I've earned a reasonable job. I deserve one now. And so when we come before God, we can make the same assumptions. We either think we either think we need to shout God back in return for what he's done, or we believe that we have earned or we deserve his favor. However, when Naaman arrives in the king's palace, he discovers that his assumptions are gravely mistaken. Firstly, he's made aware that his truckload of money, his abundance of clothes, and the letter of recommendation are of no use. They cannot earn him anything. And secondly, he's made aware that God is nowhere to be found in this palace. The king of Israel, upon receiving the letter, confirms this when he declares, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back life? Which if we zoom out again, it's quite ironic, considering Israel chose to replace God with this man, yet his own inadequacies are laid before him. He is not God. They've abandoned God, and he's nowhere to be found in this palace. I think we need to check our our own hearts. Whether we're mature Christians, new Christians, or not yet a Christian, we carry assumptions about God. Perhaps we assume that because God is a holy God, we cannot approach him until we resemble somewhat of his holiness. Perhaps we assume that because God considers homosexuality, uh, sex outside of marriage or gossip sin, that he's outdated. Perhaps we assume that because suffering exists, God is not loving. Each assumption we make can give us a faulty view of God. However, as this story unfolds in our next episode, we're going to encounter the true God. And I think we're going to be surprised by what we discover. So, In our first episode, as we've zoomed in and out, we've recognised that we can make assumptions. Or we make them all the time about our experiences in the world. But it is dangerous to assume things about God based on those experiences. So let's dive into our second episode, our surprise. And let's do this by looking at verse 8. Whereupon hearing the news about what has taken place, the king of Israel what has taken place between the king of Israel and Naaman, Elisha the prophet, sends a message to the palace. He essentially says, Send Naaman to me, the prophet of God, and he will encounter the true God and true master. And so Naaman departs. He departs the royal palace optimistically. With his brigade of horses and chariots. But as he arrives at the door of the prophet's house, he's surprised by the reception he receives. Because Elisha, God's spokesperson, doesn't even greet him at the door. But instead, in verse 10, he sent a messenger, a servant, to say to him, Go. Wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Although Naaman has been freely offered a solution, he is off-put by the manner in which it has been presented to him. And let's put ourselves in Naaman's shoes. He's come all the way from Abram, bearing gifts just to be left stranded at the front door, with a mere servant telling him to go take a bath in the dirty waters of the Jordan River and he'll be healed. Naaman has assumed that if Elisha generally was the prophet of God, then surely he would do something remarkable. Naaman says, he would surely come out to me, stand and call on the name of his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of his leprosy. But Elisha is wise. He's confronting Naaman's assumptions by declaring that the true God and master does not operate in the same manner the world's masters do. And Naaman is left disappointingly surprised. And he is not the first person to be disappointed by the surprising way God operates. As we zoom out, We know that Israel was disappointed, but God wouldn't grant them a king. Then when he does and chooses Saul, Saul was astonished that he would choose someone from the least of the clans, from the smallest of tribes. Likewise, the Jews were astonished and rejected Jesus. When Jesus claimed that he was the great descendant from the king David, And honestly, let's think about it. Jesus was sent as a servant. He was born in a cave. He grew up in a town so low that people would scoff and exclaim, Can anything good come from Nazareth? He would hang out with the homeless, the prostitute, the outcast, the disabled. He would clean his disciples' feet. He said, If you want to be first... He must be last and a servant of all. The supposed master and king was a servant of humanity and became a slave to sin by dying on the cross. He was a master who served his servants. As we zoom back in, we see Naaman's servant trying to persuade him. He says in verse 13, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then, when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed? Do we sometimes expect that to be washed and cleansed of our sin, we need to achieve something great or experience something remarkable? And so when Jesus says, repent and believe and you'll be washed clean of your sin, our human tendencies fight back. We find this difficult to comprehend. We struggle to accept it. Naaman struggles to accept it. But brothers and sisters, this is the greatest surprise you'll ever encounter. Your mighty master came not to be served but to serve us by washing us of our sins. And to my utter amazement, he did it for us freely. While we assume that we need to earn or merit our salvation, Jesus says, let me serve you freely. And so Naaman, he decides to listen to the advice of his servant and he bathes in the Jordan River seven times. And to his surprise and delight, his flesh is completely restored. Naaman is overwhelmed, and at once he returns to Elisha and stands before him and declares, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant." The surprising way in which God powerfully works leads Naaman to one conclusion. Elisha's God is the one true God. Yet Naaman still struggles to accept this free gift. He urges Elijah to accept a gift in return. But Elisha helpfully declares in verse 16, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. After Naaman's long journey and his incredible encounter, he finally realizes he has nothing to offer God in return for his grace. And so he concludes that the only appropriate thing to do is serve God. To serve the master. In verse 17 and 18, he calls himself a servant of God four times. And he declares to Elisha that he will serve no other god but the Lord himself. For the original audience, Israel, Naaman's declaration was condemning. For they have witnessed God's miraculous grace throughout their history, time and time again. Yet they've stopped serving him. Whilst a Gentile who has travelled across nations to be healed has become a follower and a servant of their God, of the true God. Jesus himself, in Luke 4, shares this story with the Jews in the synagogue. He says... There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. The Jews in Jesus' time were expecting a mighty warrior to save them by marching into Jerusalem, overthrowing the Roman Empire, judging their oppressors, and reclaiming the throne. But Jesus is proclaiming to them, That you will overlook your true king, your true master, like the Israelites, if you continue with your worldly assumptions. Yet Naaman has not overlooked the true king. Instead, in this episode, he has encountered the surprising master. He has received his grace and he has chosen to serve him. And Elisha welcomes his decision and says, Go in peace, Naaman. And I reckon this would have been a fitting place for our story to finish, with Naaman having encountered God, going back to his homeland to serve the Lord in peace. What do you think? But it doesn't, does it? Our story continues. We've seen the common mistake. We've encountered this surprise and now in our third episode, we are given a warning. And this warning is given to us as we wrestle with the question, well, how do I serve a God who freely serves me and who I have nothing to offer? I think that's, that's a great question to be asking. And so in the remainder of our passages, we're introduced to a new character. We're given three warnings of how not to serve our master. Our first warning is, don't abuse his grace. As the story continues in verse 20, we're introduced to Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God. Perhaps this was the servant who gave Naaman the message of the front door of Elisha's house. Perhaps it's a different servant. Either way, Gehazi decides that his master was too easy on Naaman by not accepting the gifts he offered. So he says to himself, As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after Naaman and get something from him. But if we compare this to the words Elisha says in verse 16, he says this, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve I will not accept a thing. Both acknowledge the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, they declare. But whilst Elisha says he will serve the Lord and not accept a thing, Gehazi acknowledges God, but abuses his grace. Instead, he serves himself. Author Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, calls this cheap grace. It's assuming that grace didn't come at a cost, but the cost was Jesus' life. His argument is that although you can't earn his grace, you are now vessels of God's grace to a graceless world. I think abusing God's grace emerges in our lives when we only serve God when it's convenient. When his forgiveness, his promises and his laws are convenient. To us. Otherwise, we just continue to serve our own needs and desires. Gehazi greedily abuses God's grace and continues to chase after his own desires. Our second warning is you don't and you cannot earn his grace. In addition to abusing God's grace, Gehazi assumes that Naaman must earn God's grace or pay something back. So he chases him down and he requests a payment, doesn't he? I think this might be difficult for most of us to admit, but have you ever seen someone, have you ever come across someone, perhaps in the church, perhaps in the streets, and thought, they don't deserve Jesus? They're not righteous enough. They haven't earned God's grace. They don't merit Jesus' favour. Sadly, we can unnecessarily place barriers on people coming to Jesus. But Jesus freely offered himself for all sinners, not for the righteous, for all sinners, for all people. Riverbank, let's welcome people freely into the grace that Jesus offers. Gehazi incorrectly assumes you must earn or merit God's grace. And our third warning, we're told, don't reject his grace. As the story continues and Gehazi returns home, he's confronted by Elisha who knows he has sinned against God and says to him, where have you been? Instead of confessing his sin, Gehazi attempts to continue his deception, but he cannot. And neither can we hide our sin from God. But so frequently we do, don't we? And as a result, we reject his free grace. We have a God who delights to forgive us. In Hebrews 12, it says, With joy he went to the cross to pay for our sins. So don't deny God the joy of forgiving you. And don't deny yourself the pleasure of being forgiven. Instead, confess your sin to God, for he is gracious and will forgive you. Gehazi says, rejects God's grace. Brothers and sisters, serving God is not abusing his grace. It is not earning his grace and it is not rejecting his grace. Serving God is first and foremost accepting and delighting each day that Jesus came to serve you freely. It is when you understand and can delight in His grace that you will desire to follow in His footsteps all the more. To follow in the footsteps of a master who serves. If we zoom out of this story once again, we notice that it's a story that is a warning to Israel because they have abused, rejected, and tried to earn God's grace. And so they became more like the nations and the false gods they serve and less like the Lord himself. And it's a warning to us. If you observe yourself and notice that perhaps you're, more, you're behaving more like Israel and Gehazi, please listen to this warning from the Lord because you're travelling on the same path as them just like Naaman, who made mistakes, he was stubborn, he was furious and angry. But God's free grace is available to him. And it's available to each and every single one of us. If you'll let Jesus serve you. In life all day long, we are swimming in this world. A world that assumes we must earn and merit everything we receive. Naaman... He was swimming in that world. But as we zoom in on stories like this and zoom out on God's big picture in the Bible, we see God dispel our assumptions and instead constantly, constantly surprise us by revealing himself as a master, as the master who is gracious. And God reveals his biggest surprise when he sends our master Jesus, the son of God to serve the world. Jesus flips all of our assumptions on its head, doesn't he? And we realize that he is our true God, our true savior. Jesus surprises us with his freeing grace, his generous forgiveness, his loving discipline, his tender compassion. And his surprising salvation through Jesus. And one day all the world will bow down before Jesus and serve him. Because serving Jesus is not a heavy burden. No, he says, come to me. Follow me. Serve me. For I am gentle and humble. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says, Please let me serve you. Will you let him? For his grace is free for all those who come to him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we acknowledge and we admit that we are swimming in a world that makes assumptions about you. And when, and Lord, we too often let them influence how we view you. And Lord, I just pray that we can come to your word, that we can come to stories like this and see God that you are not like us. You are far greater. Lord, you do not require people to earn your salvation, to earn your favour. No, you come and you serve us. And Lord, at times that is hard for us to understand and grasp. But Lord, help us to just come before you with praise and with thanksgiving and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that I could not do it that you did it for me, that you went to the cross to pay for my sins, to forgive me of all my transgressions, and you have done this freely. Help us to delight in your mercy, to treasure your love, and be thankful each day that your grace is new. Lord, we thank you for our saviour, Jesus Christ. May we continue to delight in him each and every single day. Pray this in your name, Jesus, for your glory alone. Amen.